Welcome to Jam's Pod, brought to you by the Joint Academic Microbiology Seminars. This is your host, Lucy Semenek, and producer Amy Kane. And today in our Antimicrobial Awareness Week special, we'll be speaking to Professor Deborah Williamson. Deborah is a clinical microbiologist, Director of Microbiology at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and Deputy Director of the Microbiological Diagnostic Unit Public Health Laboratory. She is also a lab head in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne. She's an expert in public health laboratory services and specializes in epidemiology, antimicrobial resistance, and surveillance of infectious diseases. She has been awarded the prestigious L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Fellowship for her achievements and is a member of the Royal College of Physicians and a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists. Hi, Deb. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. So we'd just like to start off by asking, how long have you been in antibiotic resistance and what was the catalyst for you being interested in antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess, um, uh, you know, it depends how you measure that time. So I started off in medicine (laughs) uh, back in the mid-90s. And actually, you know, just I think being involved in healthcare um, per se means that you're involved in antimicrobial resistance in some way, shape, or form, because you know the the actions that we take as healthcare professionals uh, can, I guess, shape antimicrobial resistance. Um, and so, uh, uh, but more formally, I guess, in terms of working in the research applied to antimicrobial resistance, um, look, I would say that that's. That's really only in the past um, uh, 10 years. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, you're always exposed to it. So it makes sense that you'd be interested in help solve the problem. <laughs> so um, can you tell us about how your research tries to tackle antimicrobial resistance? Yes. So I guess my research really focuses on the application of genomic technologies to antimicrobial resistance um, particularly around the application of whole genome sequencing to antimicrobial resistance. Um, and, you know, this is, a, a, I guess, a, um, a, an area that has exploded um, over the past, uh, particularly over the past five years, as the technology has become much more accessible and much more equitable. Um, and, you know, when you use genomics, it's a one-stop shop, really. Um, and uh, for detecting a, a whole bunch of things, so bacterial species, or uh, in fact, a microbial species, resistance determinants, importantly, the context of those resistance determinants, so whether they're on mobile genetic elements such as plasmids, and, you know, that provides insights into how resistance emerges and spreads. What that means from a public health perspective is that we can apply public health questions to those genomic data. So, for example, what was the effect of introducing a particular antibiotic at a population level on resistance patterns? And we can apply that to to lots and lots of bacterial sequences. Um, And so, um, yeah, that's really been the area that I've been working in. Do you have a favourite microbe that you like to study or one that you think is particularly dangerous in the field of antibiotic resistance? Oh, that's a great question. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, so initially I started off really liking Staph aureus because, you know, uh, um, it was ubiquitous. I understood it. 
um, and uh, you know, I did my PhD in Steph Aureus in, in New Zealand, and there, you know, there was a lot of Steph Aureus in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand actually has one of the highest rates of um, skin infections in the um, amongst uh, um, high-income countries, um, uh, largely driven by socio-demographic inequality, um, particularly um, in Maori and Pacific peoples. Um, and so um, I was very, I did a, you know worked in that area in New Zealand, but I have to say that my favourite pathogen has changed over the past oh. few years, um, and I always like a challenge, and I, I would probably say the most challenging organism in terms of antimicrobial resistance at the moment is Neisseria gonorrhea. Mm. And that is because it is um, the archetypal superbug. And I, I don't really like the term superbug, but it is genuinely a superbug. In as much as it can take up bits of DNA really easily from the environment, it's highly recombinogenic. And what that means is that you get... Um, you know, mosaic alleles um, uh, uh, and, you know, different different resistance mechanisms emerging very frequently. So you get point mutations and, um, you know, recombination leading to um, a, a adaptation of this really successful human pathogen. Um, so I would say that I, um, I respect and admire Neisseria gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, recently they just there was some gonorrhea that was completely untreatable, right? Like there is yeah. not no antibiotics that can treat it, which is pretty scary. It is, yeah, it absolutely is. You know, it's and it sounds, um, uh, you know, we use that sort of term. We we use phrases like that in in you know common discourse, I guess these days. You know, we talk about XDR this or MDR that. And, and, you know, sometimes I think it's important just to reflect on what that actually means at a patient level, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, Back to pre-antibiotic era, no treatment at all. Going to be injecting mercury again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah. Um, so I know you touched on this already, but um, how do the sort of automated resistance strain tracking with genomics um, compare to what, like, traditional methods yeah, that is a good question. And at the moment for whole genome sequencing, you still need those traditional methods, right? So you still need a bacterial isolate to sequence. Um, and so, um, you know, there's obviously a burgeoning field of metagenomics, which is direct sequencing from patient samples, but that's lagging a long way behind whole genome sequencing. Mm. So culture-based methods are still absolutely critical for whole genome sequencing. Mm. And, you know, and again, I see gonorrhea, I hate to use that again as an example, but it is a, it is a good example of why we need, still need traditional methods. So in, um, uh, in Australia, um, as little as, you know, 10% of all gonorrhea notifications are associated with a bacterial culture. That, that proportion changes in um, in different jurisdictions, um, but um, you know very few uh, notifications are associated with the culture. Most of the notifications are through direct PCR diagnosis of gonorrhea, so it's not cultured. Yeah. So we're using our whole genome sequencing on only a small proportion 
of the notifications, which means we only get a glimpse, I guess, of around what's happening. Can you tell our listeners what notification means? <laughs> okay, so, um, so um, for notifiable diseases, so and that's really um, things of diseases, infectious diseases of public health importance. Um, often they're referred to as communicable diseases. Um, they are required by law to be notified to a public health department. Um, and so every time one of these notifiable diseases is notified to a public health department, we call it a notification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 10% of those were... Well, it depends. It depends where you are. Mm-hmm. But in some in some areas, it can be as low as 10%. Wow, yeah. And some, not that this is a problem necessarily for ABR, for antimicrobial resistance, but things like chlamydia can't easily be cultured at all Correct. in, in that way. So some, some infections you really do need to have DNA-based methods. For example. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, so can you tell us what you think the major causes of antibiotic resistance are right now? Is it um, patients not being, being careful with... Uh, administration or is it more of an agricultural source sort of like in Australia as the as a whole like in the community and yeah look again that is that is a short but incredibly complex question <laughs> so there's no one thing that drives antibiotic resistance right it's um, it's a whole bunch of things coming together to create a perfect storm so it's the uh, the use, the misuse, the overuse of antimicrobials, um, and there are different drivers in different parts of the world. And, you know, I know we're talking about antimicrobial resistance in Australia, but, you know, we're relatively fortunate here in that rates of antimicrobial resistance, apart from a few exemplars, um, uh, are, are generally quite low. Um, that's not to say that we're immune and, you know, what's a problem on one part, so as we've actually, you know, seen with COVID, what's a, a problem on one part of the world one day can be in Sydney's doorstep or Melbourne's doorstep the next day. Um, and, and, and we see that frequently with incursions of very resistant strains. You know, people talk a lot about, um, you know, uh, antibiotic resistance just being due to doctors over-prescribing antibiotics and patients not taking them properly. Properly, but that's not that's not really doing justice to the big picture. And you know, we don't really think of antibiotic resistance as something that has you know things like geopolitical causes. But it but it really does. I mean, if you think about the very high level drivers of it, then things like you know food insecurity, uh, global migration, globalization, climate change. All of those things are actually drivers of antibiotic resistance. You know, population growth, they are the high level drivers of antibiotic resistance. And it's it's very easy to try and simplify the message uh, because people don't people don't really deal well with, you know, that that kind of um, big picture, if you like, thinking. It's not a headline grabber, is it? Geopolitical instability <laughs> leads to antibiotic resistance. It's more like, you know, poor infection control practices at this hospital leads to anti- antimicrobial resistance. But then, so then I guess the follow-on question to that is like, can you maybe tell people what a One Health approach to 
tackling antibiotic resistances and how um, how we might use that um, in Australia um, to to help um, tackle it on a larger scale. So not just people individually taking their antibiotic courses, but what are sort of other things that we could maybe do to help tackle the problem? Yeah. So look, um, the first thing that I think that um, really um, is important in tackling antimicrobial resistance is um, good surveillance. So knowledge is power. <laughs> and um, at the moment, we don't really have a great handle on levels of antimicrobial resistance in, um, uh, in agriculture uh, and even horticulture, right? Mm. So um, and we don't really know in Australia how that links up to human health. There have been a lot of groups working hard in this space, doing um, great things on a relative, uh, on a you know a, a statewide scale. Uh, but at the moment, we don't have that joined up national surveillance across different jurisdi- jurisdictions across human and agricultural sectors. Yeah. A good example of that would be in, in Denmark, for example, where they do have that kind of joined up surveillance. So they know that, for example, MRSA in their pig population, you know, was transmitted to humans and vice versa, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for some of the big ticket diseases, infectious diseases in Australia, like salmonellosis, for example, I mean, salmonella, uh, uh, non-typhoidal salmonella has a huge host reservoir, mm-hmm. you know, um, in animals. But we don't really know how that relates to salmonellosis in humans, particularly around antimicrobial resistance. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, better surveillance uh, and better monitoring of what antibiotics are used um, would go a long way. Yeah, yeah, I agree with also the centralising everything would be good as well. So, um, so yeah, we had some sort of... Um, antimicrobial resistance task force or something that could go across industries because I liked your example of Denmark as well because they were one of the first countries to remove antibiotics as growth promoters in their pig feed and things like that mm-hmm. and they still managed to have the same eventually the same output um, of um, pork because uh, of changing hygiene practices and stuff like that and it was a big sort of effort for everyone to move forward so Hopefully, Australia can also do that yeah. kind of coordinated effort. Yeah. And you know what? It's important just to note that One Health isn't just about antimicrobial resistance. You know, it's um, uh, again, um, it's about monitoring other zoonotic diseases. And you know, this year has been, <laughs> you know, a great example of how better One Health surveillance, you know, could be useful. Yeah, for sure. Um, given the current situation with the pandemic, uh, we're kind of forced to think about what a pandemic and antimicrobial resistance would look like. Uh, we're closing in on it. Uh, by 2050, it's predicted that there will be 10 million deaths per year. So uh, what types of measures do you think we would be taking in such a pandemic? Would it be similar to what we're seeing with COVID? Do you mean if there was a pandemic of antimicrobial resistant organisms? Yeah, like what what would that sort of look like and what could we do now to stem it um, coming? Like if we knew COVID was coming, we might have acted a little bit differently. What could we do now to prevent the antibiotic-resistant pandemic? 
Like yeah, where, where? so look, there's a, there are, um, I guess, um, a, a lot of published frameworks around how we might mitigate and reduce the risk of antimicrobial resistance. Um, uh, again, uh, you know, some of the pillars we are improved surveillance, um, uh, restrictions around the use of specific antimicrobials in human and animal health, um, uh, better, um, I guess, weirdly around monitoring the um, constituents of some antimicrobials in particularly in low and middle income countries where you know there may be um, sub-therapeutic levels of the, uh, the active agent I guess um, uh, but you know it, again it's, it comes down to that big picture thinking and actually pre preventing infectious diseases per se yeah. yep so you know talking about tackling antimicrobial resistance is ambulance at the bottom of a cliff um, <laughs> you know, scenario mm. where you actually want to prevent infections in the first place. And that comes back to those big ticket public health interventions around, you know, improving basic hygiene and sanitation, uh, improving access to healthcare, improving health literacy about when to get infections treated. So, you know, it's improving hand hygiene. It's not, um, it, it isn't, it's not rocket science, but it, what it requires are major investments in, in public health in many countries. When you mention hand hygiene, um, what do you think the effect of the large scale use of hand sanitizers during the COVID pandemic ha ha has done for antimicrobial resistance? I don't know. And that, that is a good question. <laughs> Um, and so there's been, there have been some studies, um, I guess, looking at what the possible impact of um, throwing um, huge volumes, if you like, of um, antiseptics, which is basically, you know, what we're looking at here, um, uh, against populations of bacteria. History has taught us that bacteria will survive and overcome what we throw at them. And I think it is something that we have to um, um, finally balance, I guess. Um, and, you know, soap and water is, um, uh, um, there's a lot to be said for using that. Um, but I think, you know, the, the collateral damage, if any, mm. um, is yet to be determined. Having said that, you know, again, others uh, have, um, a lot to be said about preventing infections in the first place. So, um, uh, and it may well be that um, that that large, that offsets any collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard question to answer, and it depends on what types of products are in the sanitizers. Some that's exactly right. Yeah, some of them have chlorhexidine, which might actually exacerbate AMR, but then others might just be like you said just soap and water that people are using so that's probably a lot better yeah um so knowing what you know about bacteria and how adaptable they are do you think that it is possible one day that we would develop antibiotics that uh, bacteria cannot develop resistance towards um no <laughs> <laughs> so then sort of a follow-on question from that what kind of 
strategies do you think will be the next up and coming? What do you think will be the most promising strategies in the next 10 years? So, for example, um, we know that things like phage therapy viruses that eat bacteria are coming up or like using metals in hospitals or like what do you think will be the most promising strategies in the next 10 years? Yeah, well, I guess what I think are some of the more novel strategies as opposed to what I think should happen, which is preventing infection in the first <laughs> yeah. place. Um, but certainly phage therapy, there's been a lot of work uh, uh, done on that. And you know, a lot of really excellent groups in Australia are working on this as well. So um, you know, phage therapy is definitely um, one to watch. Precision medicine, so um for example, things like resistance-guided therapy for infections where you use direct detection for resistance from clinical samples before you know, culture is performed. So quick detection of resistance determinants and then targeted therapy rather than using broad-scale antibiotics, which might encourage more resistance, I think is something to watch. So is that like, in that case, do you just look for the resistance of the bacteria and you don't care about what species it is? You're just looking for the... You're looking for the resistance gene, yeah. yeah but often these these assays will come with another marker or probe for the bacterial species mm-hmm. of interest mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and I guess things like um, uh, improved, um, di- something called diagnostic stewardship, so better diagnostic tests to more quickly diagnose infections so that appropriate antibiotics can be given. So, you know, things like CRISPR, um, diagnos- diagnostics or nanotechnology, these are all things to watch. So what role do you see technology playing in containing resistance and developing new antibiotics? Yeah, so just, I guess, following on from, from that, definitely rapid diagnostics. Mm, yeah. yeah. So the quicker that we can diagnose inf- the infections and the cause of infections, then um, we can um, uh, make sure that you know patient gets the right antibiotics, as opposed to the sort of blunderbuss approach, which we do at the moment, which is you know giving really broad spectrum antibiotics in the hope of covering it. Mm. I guess the other thing as well is around. Um, uh, better surveillance, so using technology to better uh, for better surveillance of um, resistance. So integrating all of that whole genome sequence data, um, not just across the country but internationally, so we can set up these sort of genomic early warning systems for the emergence of AMR. What is the sort of turnover time that you have at the moment, or what do you think is the best sort of time, turnover time where you have a patient with a infection um, and then you get the sort of sequencing of the DNA output from the resistance profile? Or what's the sort of minimum time that you can get between that diagnosis and the and the patient lying there? It depends what you're looking for. So, you know, if you're looking for um, uh, for whole genome sequencing, then... Uh, you know, you're looking at potentially 24 to 48 hours to culture and isolate from a patient and then another maybe 48 hours to get a whole genome sequencing result. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if you're looking for rapid detection of AMR, it's probably, um, again, 24 to 48 hours mm-hmm. um, using standard protocols for detection of the bacteria and then, you know, working out what the resistance is. Um, and that's you know, in that period of time, patients will be on 
you know, those broad spectrum antibiotics. Yeah, so they're sort of in a holding pattern until you can figure out exactly what's happening. I did see some cool work with sort of nanopore um, sequencing technology, which is the handheld devices. You have a USB that you just plug into your computer, and it was the ones that they were using for the Ebola outbreak. And one thing that they could do was they could start to detect antibiotic resistance genes within like half an hour of once they'd done the sample preparation. And then once they loaded it onto the nanopore, they were starting to see the resistance genes coming up quite rapidly. Um, So do you have any sort of ideas about or any goals that you would like to get to, like with a rapid turnover time? Like, Like Yeah, I mean, that's the holy grail, right, is if you can rapidly detect um, resistance directly from clinical samples. And that's, I guess, where metagenomics would be yeah. really come into its own. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of groups are, are, are working on that. Um, but again, it, it's important to make sure that when you, when you implement a new diagnostic test, that it's done in a, um, I guess, a way where there's an appropriate regulatory framework around it and the test is accredited. Because if you're going to change clinical management of a patient, Based on the diagnostic test, you need to know that the test is, you know, is robust. Yeah, I think we can see from the COVID pandemic how there was, you know, false positives can send panic everywhere. So we've got to be sure that they work well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as a microbiologist, I have to say it was very weird seeing um, uh, QPCR diagnostic testing on the on the TV every yeah. night. Yeah, just seeing QPCR um, curves like coming up on your your Twitter feed or whatever from news outlets, you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we just have one final question. Um, if you did have unlimited resources, what would your five to 10 year plan be um, to save antibiotic resistance pandemic happening globally? Yeah. It's a wish list for yeah. stopping antimicrobial <laughs> resistance. If I had unlimited, unlimited, yes, for five to ten years, you can go. You could start up a colony on Mars if you yeah, want to. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. No, it would be it would be those public health measures. It would be preventing infections, making sure that um, uh, communities had uh, the basic public health infrastructure that people need to survive and thrive. So you mm-hmm. know, food. Uh, a secure food supply, uh, clean water, um, R- running uh, water, flushing toilets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basic. Yeah, I, yeah vaccinations. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mention that, but again, you know, it's critical. Mm. Yeah. It's not, I, it's, as I keep saying it's not rocket science. There's no. Um, sometimes I do look at you know these grand challenges related to antimicrobial resistance and. Yeah, it's just. Self-infection. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, well, okay. Thanks so much, Deborah. It was really nice speaking with you, and we really enjoyed our time with you. Well, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me on the on the program. It's a great... Um, I enjoy listening to it, so... Well, great. Not that I'll be listening to myself. No. Oh, please do. <laughs> oh, that was really good. <laughs> okay, Thank you. Thank you.